Scripture today comes from the book of Mark, chapter 10, uh, verses 46 through 52. They came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, Have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling for you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is God's good word for us today. Well, good morning. It's so good to be here and to see all of you today. Thank you. Thank you, Karn. Um, I, uh, as um, Chris said, I come representing my own church uh, this morning, Grace City Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. I'm here with my son, Connor. Uh, we decided to take a, a guy's trip this weekend, and it's, I think we calculated it out. It's like a 20-hour trip, so really fast trip there, here and back, but uh, it is a, it's a true pleasure to be able to be with you again. I, I always am happy to be able to see some of my uh, closest friends as I come here, your pastors, uh, but it's an added bonus and a privilege to see all of you. And so hope to get to say hello to some of you after the meeting and uh, before we take off and hit the road again. But uh, just a, I guess just a, a fast update about Grace City Church would be appropriate since uh, I have shared these in the past. Uh, we, I always say this a bit jokingly, but it is true. Uh, we still exist as a church. And uh, I attribute that to uh, the kindness of the Lord uh, to uh, here we are, we're almost at our fourth uh, anniversary and uh, it's, uh, we're not closed down. And so I, I, I always say, I think the Lord is, still has things that he wants to do uh, through this church. And so by his grace, uh, we're growing. Uh, we actually just started uh, meeting last Sunday in a new facility, uh, which was an answer to prayer. The uh, facility we had before was getting a little tight, and so last Sunday we, we gathered in this new building that was bigger, and we had to pull chairs out. We weren't planning for that, and so uh, we were just blown away. We just, we just can't believe that uh, God would love us and our city uh, of Wilmington like he does, and so um, I, uh, I, I stand before you as a, a humbled and grateful person. Uh, because it's not anything we've done. Chris said it right. We're not talking about things that we've done. Uh, This is all the goodness of God. Jesus is building his church. And and we we tend to think about that in church planting as our church, but uh, that's not the case necessarily. He is building the church, and uh, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so I, I stand before you as a happy man this morning. And uh, this is a, a sweet time. Well, I, uh, I came prepared to read the word, but uh, Mike did such a great job, so we'll get right into this. Uh, Mark chapter 10, 
Well, I love being a pastor. Uh, There are few callings that afford a man and his family to be able to see God do the work of changing lives. And so, as I said, I'm humbled and grateful to have been doing this for about 12 years. Uh, But I did not start off in vocational ministry. Uh, As a teenager, uh, I became intrigued by the work that my uncle, my dad's brother, did uh, in a field that in uh, many ways is, is becoming a dying industry or a dying field, and that's the field of opticianry. Uh, a dispensing optician, and I'm not saying obstetrician, I've never delivered a baby before. Uh, an optician uh, takes a doctor's prescription, usually an optometrist or an ophthalmologist, and uh, prepares a pair of glasses or contacts for someone uh, to correct their visual acuity, to help them to, to see. And so uh, being interested in that from a t- as a teenager, I went to school. I went to school in Massachusetts uh, for opticianry. Yes, there is a program called opticianry. And I received my license in North Carolina. I've had it since 2009 or so. And I've, I've kept it just in case the pastoral ministry doesn't work out. But, uh, but truly, uh, helping a person see uh, is really a gift. Helping a person be able to look with their eyes and C is a rewarding aspect of being an optician. And I was perhaps most encouraged when I was able to help a small child see for the first time, uh, get his first pair of glasses. And I can very specifically remember this time uh, when I sat with this five-year-old boy who came out and sat in front of me with his mother. His mother felt so bad uh, that this little guy was sitting in front of me with this really bad prescription. And uh, so I tried to console her and comfort her. Listen, it's okay. Uh, he has been used to seeing blurry his whole life. He thought that was normal. You did not make a mistake. Uh, and so uh, that's why he hasn't complained to you. He couldn't see anyway, but he was used to it. And so uh, we sat down and we picked out a pair of frames and I had a pair of glasses made up for him. And the glasses came in and when he sat down, I had him close his eyes And I said, okay, I'm going to put your glasses on. And I I put his glasses on. I said, no, keep your eyes closed. And I turned his head toward his mother. And I said, okay, I want you to open your eyes. And he opened up his eyes. And this huge smile came across his face. uh, Because for the very first time, he saw the woman who has given her life to serve him, to care for him, to love him. And he saw her clearly. Now imagine if that was you, except you've been that way your whole life, and you have been unable to see anything, and you have relied exclusively on everyone else to survive. But then one day, everything changed. You were given eyesight. And the very first thing, the very first person you saw was the Lord Jesus Christ. This was the experience of Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, the blind beggar from Jericho. Now, this is a a random story. It's a pretty short story. Maybe you're wondering why we did this one today. Uh, It's a beautiful story. But in it, we catch a glimpse of the heart of Jesus towards someone who, quite frankly, was an outcast in his culture. Here, Jesus enters into his world and invites Bartimaeus to see him, not only with his physical eyes, 
but with his spiritual eyes. And when he does, Bartimaeus is changed forever. Now, dear ones, is that not what discipleship with Jesus is all about? To see him in degrees, to better look into his heart for us. And when we see him in degrees, we are changed into his image from one degree of glory to the next. Now, sometimes, though, the clearest sight of him is gained by way of darkness. Like Bartimaeus, like that five-year-old boy, darkness is the way we must go to see Jesus most clearly. And when the darkness lifts to know him who loved us, who by giving his life for us, that changes us forever. If you're a note taker and you're taking notes for this sermon and you want the title of this sermon, the title is An Invitation to See Jesus. And friends, I want to use our short time today, I hope as a a fitting supplement to your study in Colossians, by looking at the heart of Christ to those whose world is dark. If you're weary this morning, if you're tired, if you are needy today, Jesus invites you to see him, not with physical eyes, but with spiritual eyes. And beholding the character of our Savior in degrees, we are changed forever. I have two simple headings this morning. I want to study this text under. The first is the compassion of Jesus, and the second is the generosity of Jesus. Let's first look at the compassion of Jesus. Now, this little story signals a turning point in Mark's gospel. Until this point in the timeline, Jesus has largely sought to keep his identity, to keep his mission as the Messiah quiet, revealing only who who he was to only his closest disciples. And what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah was not quite what they expected, And by this point in the narrative, he's told him three times what being the Messiah means for him, and that is death. Now, by and large, the crowds see Jesus in a totally different light. The crowds see Jesus as a a great miracle worker, a great teacher. And there is this sort of bubbling anticipation amongst the crowds that this could be the the long-awaited, anticipated deliverer, Messiah of Israel. Of course, we know if we've studied the Gospels, the religious leaders see him differently. They see him as a troublemaker, and they've been plotting practically the whole Gospel of Mark, how they are going to take him down. But even his own disciples, Jesus' own disciples, who believe that he is the Messiah, are at this point still struggling to grasp that Jesus is not the kind of king that they think he should be. To them, glory for Jesus means earthly rule over their enemies. Being the Messiah means being first, means being the best. It means being the greatest king. And of course, there will come a time when his reign is public and we anticipate that day. But for now, there and here, As Jesus has so often had to do patiently and repeatedly, 
Jesus teaches his disciples that greatness in the kingdom of God means being last. Greatness in God's kingdom means being made low so that others can be raised up. Greatness means looking out for the interests of others at great cost to oneself. Greatness is serving, not being served. And this other-centeredness is at the heart of the gospel. So friends, it is the irony of the highest order and a testimony to Mark's careful composition of this gospel that a blind man works out Jesus' identity and mission better than do his own disciples. Now, what do I mean by that? Let's take a closer look at this story. Jesus and this entourage is moving through the city of Jericho. Jericho is thought to be the oldest continuously inhabited city in the world. It's located about 20 miles northeast of Jerusalem, about 3,500 miles, excuse me, feet below Jerusalem. So you would climb up the hill to Jerusalem from Jericho. As far as Mark is concerned, it's Jesus' last stop before he enters into Jerusalem in the final week of his pre-resurrection life. On this day in Jericho, the city teems with life. There are pilgrims in the city that are on their way from the north to Jerusalem to participate in the Passover. The Passover was, was one of the three major Jewish feasts in Jerusalem every year. But also, of course, there's a, a large crowd that's following after Jesus, watching his miracles, hoping to get a touch from him, hoping to hear some great teaching. So Jesus is passing through. And as he nears the, the city gates to leave the city, we are told that this man, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, who is probably a fixture near the city gates, everybody recognized him, hears that Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And as soon as Bartimaeus learns that it's Jesus, he begins to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, son of David is a unique title in Mark. It's a title that's not yet been used in this story. It's a title that no other human being uses in this story other than Jesus just a little bit later. It's a title that was first used some 100 years before Jesus came to the earth to refer to the long-awaited warrior Messiah who had come to destroy his enemies. But do you notice? Bartimaeus associates this title with mercy. Friends, I think that Bartimaeus has heard about this Jesus who is creating a stir. But even though Bartimaeus is in the darkness, this blind man can see Jesus better than do his closest disciples. Someone once asked Helen Keller, who was born both blind and deaf, isn't it terrible to be blind? She responded, better to be blind and see with your heart than to have two good eyes and see nothing. Bartimaeus sees Jesus with his heart before he sees him with his physical eyes. 
And his cries give evidence to the work of God's grace already working, already active in his heart. God has shown this man that the Messiah has come not only to be victorious over the enemies of God's people, but to be victorious over the brokenness of creation that oppresses all people. But the people around Bartimaeus, they don't get this. They're blind to Jesus' mission, so they tell the blind man to shut up. Be quiet. Don't annoy the teacher. But this makes Bartimaeus, of course, cry all the louder because he won't miss his chance. And friends, this is really where we begin to see the heart of Jesus put on full display. Look at verse 49. It says, and Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man saying to him, I love this sentence, take heart, get up. He is calling you. Get up out of the crouched down position that's so symbolic of the brokenness of your life and come to him. In the original, the beginning of verse 49 literally reads, and Jesus stood still. Now friends, understand what's happening here. Jesus is less than one week away from a false arrest and violent crucifixion. He knows the anguish that awaits him. He knows the sorrows that he will endure. He knows the abandonment that he will face. Yet, at the cry of a lowly beggar, he notices and he stops. And the train comes to a standstill. And he gives the order, call him. In Matthew's gospel account of this story, he tells us something about Jesus' heart that I think is implied here in Mark. It says, in pity, Jesus called this man who was groaning under the decay of creation. Now, the modern English doesn't quite capture what the word pity means in the original. What caused Jesus to stop at this man's cries? It wasn't pity like we understand pity, like a, like a mere feeling of sorrow for someone. No, this is a deep, gut-wrenching emotion over human suffering that moves Jesus not just to feel on his behalf, but to act on his behalf. B.B. Warfield, the theologian, describes the mindset that Jesus had that drove him to act. He says, the gospels uncover for us the heart of Jesus as he wins for us our salvation. Not in cold unconcern, but in flaming wrath against the foe, Jesus smites in our behalf. He has not only saved us from the evils which oppress us, he has felt for us and with us in our oppression, and under the impulse of these feelings has wrought our redemption. It is gut-wrenching sorrow toward the oppression of this man that prompts Jesus to call him. Friends, imagine this scene. Don't let this scene pass by you with, with this electrified hum of this bustling, massive crowd clamoring for Jesus' attention. Jesus hears the cry of an outcast. 
Jesus hears the cry of a man on the margins, a beggar pleading for mercy. And without a moment's hesitation, Jesus welcomes this poor man into his presence and avails to him his full arsenal of power and grace. Friends, do you see? Jesus is busy about his father's work. But we see here that all along, the father's work was to embody, to incarnate his mercy in the person of his son. Our suffering kindles his mercy, John Piper says. Like an old radio frequency, his ears are keenly tuned to the cry of the hurting. To those who've been wounded by cutting words. To those who feel the unrelenting sting of betrayal. To those exhausted by sickness. To those who are weary from toil. Friends, we know Jesus is compassionate, but church, did we know that his compassion runs this deeply? Do we know, do we really know that not only is the Lord Jesus not repelled by our brokenness like we tend to be with the brokenness of others? No, our brokenness is the magnet that moves him toward us. Before he was healed, Bartimaeus saw the compassion of Jesus on that day. Do we see the compassion of Jesus in this way before we are healed? Now, friends, compassion without action will soon dilute into sentimentality. Jesus is no sentimental savior. He gives lavishly to those who ask. So we move on to the second point, the generosity of Jesus. After Bartimaeus springs from the side of the road, he's led to the middle of the road where Jesus is standing. His world is pitch black as he comes face to face with Jesus. And I imagine a hush falls over the crowd. And it's Jesus who breaks the silence. And he asks Bartimaeus, what seems to be a rather unusual question for someone to ask a blind man. What do you want me to do for you? Perhaps a few of Jesus' disciples look at one another as if to say, is he serious? Does he not know that this man is blind? But this question is is such a wonderful question because it's packed with purpose. It's packed with meaning. You see, friends, Jesus knows exactly what Bartimaeus wants. He knows exactly what his condition is. Jesus is not asking the question to gain new knowledge of Bartimaeus, no. It's the other way around, actually. Jesus is asking a question to Bartimaeus so that Bartimaeus would gain new knowledge of him. Friends, by inviting this blind man to verbally express his need, Jesus is giving an opportunity to this man to exercise faith in him by articulating exactly what his needs are. Think about a time in your own life 
When you had some need, some great big need. Maybe you have that right now. Chances are you didn't simply say, God help me and then move on. Now what did you do? You packed, unpacked your heart before the Lord. You cried out to him. You pressed into him. You detailed every aspect of what was going on. And you didn't have to have anybody say to you, he already knows all that. You knew exactly what you needed to tell him. Friends, when we pray in this way, two wonderful things happen. First, we get to the bottom of what really ails us. In other words, we learn the spiritual need that's fueling our temporal need. Think about when you, for example, have been in financial straits. You've had financial struggles. Articulating our need to God is so often what the Spirit uses to help us see, for example, trust issues in our hearts. To convict us of the ways that we have not been relying on God's grace. To convict us of the ways that maybe we're trusting too much in riches. Trusting too much in provision for protection. We're trusting in the cushion of the savings account more than we are the Savior. Or for example, if we pray for physical healing. Unpacking our hearts before God can help us to see that maybe we haven't been suffering well. We've been complaining in our hearts. We've been complaining out loud. We've been harsh with those who are around us. Friends, unpacking our hearts to God helps us to see what's at the bottom of our hearts. And it prepares us to receive God's grace. It prepares us to see that Jesus is a better Savior. And that's the second thing that happens when we articulate our need. Our suffering becomes an opportunity to discover the character of God. To see that he is trustworthy. To see that he is enough. Jesus' question to Bartimaeus is an invitation to see Jesus with spiritual eyes. He's not healed yet, is he? The thing he wanted hasn't come true yet. Mm, But he sees. He sees the Savior. So here's how he responds. Verse 51, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Now in the original, the title Rabbi is not actually used here. That's the typical one that means teacher, but he actually uses Rabboni. This is a title that's rarely used in Jewish literature for a human, in reference to a human. But it's most often used as an address to God in prayer. You see, even in answering Jesus' question, before he's healed, Bartimaeus' faith is bolstered as he pours out his heart to God. Let me recover my sight, O Lord. But what is Bartimaeus really asking for? Those of us who have poor physical eyesight might understand a little bit of this man's desire to see. Those of us who see well certainly take our eyesight for granted. Friends, we have to understand the context of what's happening here, the the culture that this man lived in. This man, as a blind man, was prevented from doing the normal things everybody else can do. 
He didn't have the resources available to him to survive. On top of that, he couldn't see everything that we see. He couldn't see a beautiful sunrise. He couldn't discern a face coming toward him. In a society with no welfare system, his residence at the side of the road probably means that he had no family to take care of him. In asking to see, Bartimaeus isn't really asking for much. He's simply asking for the grace to be human again. This reminds me of that classic story, Pinocchio, where Geppetto, the toy maker, made this wooden boy who came to life by the blue fairy. And the blue fairy, he he asked the blue fairy when he comes alive, am I a real boy? And the fairy says, no. But if you prove yourself to be brave and true and unselfish, someday you will be. That little fairy tale, friends, depicts something that's true of all of us. Every person in this room has a deep longing simply to be what God created us to be. And that's human. Friends, is this not why Jesus came? God sent his only son in the world to undo the damage caused by our sin and to restore the image of God back to humanity just as God intended from the very beginning of creation. Friends, Jesus traveled to Jerusalem via Jericho so that he could single out this blind man and perform his last healing miracle in Mark to show Bartimaeus and to show the crowds and to show his disciples. And yes, that means all of us that what he is doing for Bartimaeus, he came to do for all who will believe in him. Jesus Christ, fueled by gut-wrenching compassion and, and armed and equipped with unlimited power, came to make us human again. To enable us to be exactly what God created us to be. Which is what? Well, let's finish the story. Verse 52 says, And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. Before Jesus even finishes the sentence, the scales fall off this man's eyes. Light floods into his cornea and his lenses and charges his optic nerve. And like that little boy with the first pair of glasses looking at his mother, the very first face he sees is Jesus Christ. And from that day onward, the man who was a a fixture on the side of the road near the Jericho city gate became a follower of Jesus on the road. The road that led to Jerusalem where Jesus would very soon die to secure Bartimaeus' salvation, which he now accessed by grace through faith. Friends, you know, this is the, the only synoptic gospel account where the writer gives the name of the person who is healed. And this is because, I think, according to church tradition, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, was a faithful member of the church in Jerusalem after Jesus' ascension 
And Mark's readers likely knew him very well. Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, no longer blind man, but follower of Jesus on the way. Dear ones, Jesus bought our salvation not to make us rich in wealth, not to take away all of our problems. He bought our salvation simply so you and I, men, women, boys, and girls, could be human again and could now live in restored relationship with the creator of all, following Jesus on the way to the glory that is to come. We knew he was generous, didn't we? But did we know that his generosity was this lavish? Now, friends, perhaps you're listening to this stranger up here, and you're reading this story in the Bible or on the screen, and you say to yourself, that's a nice little story. But I've been following Jesus for many years, and I still live with a physical handicap. I still live every day with wounds and scars that have not healed from many years ago. I've cried out to him daily, and I wonder if he has actually heard my cries. In fact, I, I feel like I'm worse. As far as you're concerned, my friend, your darkness is not unlike blind Bartimaeus. If you were here about a year ago when I was here last, I checked, it was last July 4th. I hope you'll forgive my repeated references to John Newton, who was an 18th century English pastor that I quoted at length last time. He's a man that has helped me tremendously in my walk with Christ. John Newton is best known, of course, for his hymn, Amazing Grace. Now, what you may not know, or what you may know, is that Amazing Grace is one of 348 hymns that John Newton wrote in collaboration with his close friend, William Cooper, in a collection known as the Olney Hymns. Olney was the town in England, a rural area, where John Newton served as a pastor for 20 years. Now, William Cooper, his friend, despite having a, a really strong faith in Jesus, struggled for his entire life with deep, dark depression. Newton would often remain by his side during his, his times of weakness, during his bitter providences, as Cooper called them, those, you know, those God-ordained seasons of darkness. There was one such season that Newton recalled that was so intense that he wondered if God was actively at work against his friend. And perhaps some of you feel that way today. And so Newton took out a piece of paper and he turned his questions into a prayer and into a hymn, which is called, I Ask the Lord That I May Grow. It's a seven stanza, seven verse hymn. And the hymn is a, is a, is a timeline of Newton asking for prayer, asking God for help. Asking God to grow him in his faith. Asking God that he might know of his salvation better. Asking God to more earnestly seek his face. 
But the song goes on. God does indeed answer prayer, but in a way that almost drove him to despair. He hoped that in some favored hour, God would subdue his sins and give him rest. But instead, he caused him to feel the hidden evils of my heart. We just sang a similar song earlier. Lord, whatever happens, do whatever you want as long as you're glorified. Do you realize what you were singing when you were singing that song? Whatever it takes, Lord, be glorified in my life. Newton's prayers caused him to see the evil in his own heart to the point where he asked the Lord, Lord, will thou pursue thy worm to death? And finally, in the last line of the song, and, and doesn't the answer so often come in the last line? God answers him as to why his hand has been against him in this way, seemingly. He says this, this is the way I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ to set thee free from self and pride and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. Dear ones, Hebrews 12 says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Why? For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. He disciplines us for our good that we might share in his holiness. It was this God-ordained darkness that enabled Bartimaeus to work out who Jesus is. And it's in our God-ordained darkness where God intends for us to do the same. Last year, my wife and I experienced just a measure of this. She went through a, a long season of difficult health issues. And there were many days when we ended our day on the couch together reading a psalm or in the bed reading a psalm in hopes that she would fall asleep. And we said things that were harsh to each other. And we spoke harshly to our children. And there came a day when Michelle started to feel better and get better. And she started recovering. And that's when we actually started to see that God had been using the last four or five months to strip us of our pride, to strip us of our self-dependence, to strip us of our downward, inward gaze and help us to find our all in him. Are you in a season of darkness this morning? Maybe an extended one. Maybe for you, it's, it's you're physically unwell. And you're sick and, and, and you don't know what's going to happen to you and you're frustrated and you're scared and you've cried out to God. 
Friends, I want to tell you today, like Bartimaeus discovered, Jesus is more compassionate and generous than we sometimes see. This is an invitation to see him. He answers prayer for faith and grace. It may mean deliverance from your suffering, but friends, it will certainly be deliverance through your suffering so that you might follow him on the way, so that others might know you as one who has been with Jesus like the early church knew of Bartimaeus, so that you would have a story to tell. If you're here today and your darkness is spiritual apathy, you're tired of the place that you've been, you've been bored with God, You have hidden sin that's in your life and it's become a a closer companion to you than Jesus is. Friends, I want to tell you that Jesus is more compassionate and more generous than we know. This affliction, and it's an affliction, is an invitation to see him. He answers prayer for faith and grace. This season is not God's intention to destroy you. No, God is saving you through it in degrees to bring you to deeper repentance, repentance, to restore you to wholeness, to restore you to life so that you might follow him on the way, so that you'll have a story to tell. And my friend, if you're here today and you've never before jumped up to follow Jesus on the way, You've lived your whole life in darkness. You lived your whole life as an enemy of God, blinded to him. This story says that Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Take heart. Get up. He is calling you, and you'll know he's calling you because in your heart, you are jumping up, and you do want to leave behind the old rags of sin and darkness, and you do want to see him for the first time like that little boy. I want to call on you today. If that's you, answer him. Tell him with all your heart that you want to follow him. Receive his grace. Turn from your sin. Follow him on the way to glory, and as you go... Others will be able to hear your story too. You have a story to tell. He's passing by. He's passing by so at the right time, we will see what kind of Messiah he is. He's not a cold, unfeeling Messiah. He's one that entered into our oppression and felt it. And it was this empathetic connection with us that drove him to the cross to pay for our sin so that we could follow him on the way. That's Jesus. He's more compassionate. He's more generous than we know. Let's pray. Lord, so often we think that 
we would be so much better off if we had lived at the same time that Jesus was on earth so that we could see him with our physical eyes and we would have been much stronger followers if we could have seen him. But Lord Jesus, you said to your disciples, it's actually to your advantage that I go. Because if I go, I will send another helper who will be with you forever. The Spirit. The Spirit of Jesus. Now, Lord Jesus, this morning, I look out over a crowd of people whom I don't know. A crowd of people whose hearts I cannot see, whose lives I have not been able to look at. And we've just learned together again about this blind man who came to see. Holy Spirit, I want to ask you to please go into this audience. And I want to ask you to please awaken the eyes of our hearts this morning to see that Jesus is a better Savior than we now realize. That he came not just to teach or to make our lives better, but he came so that we might know that he will never leave our side and that he will bring us all the way to glory. Do that operative work of grace on our hearts this morning. Give us sight that is spiritual sight. And let us in faith embrace you, the one who came to feel our brokenness and who then went to Calvary's hill up that road to Jerusalem to take away that thing that separated us from God, our sin. I pray that for the one who is spiritually apathetic this morning. I pray that for the sick one. I pray that for the lost one. Be glorified, I pray, in the transformation work that you're doing now. I pray this in your name. Amen.